Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. This is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. They want to establish things like people are being eaten by vampires, or uh, creatures have learned how to fly, or we're all getting sucked to a terrible vortex. They would invent an actual mechanic in the game that would reflect that in some kind of gameplay. Um, so the one first thing I want to tell you is that art and fluff and background is not enough to carry the concept of your game. And it doesn't matter if it's video games or cards or board games or whatever. Every, all games have mechanics, and mechanics lend to the flavor of what you're doing. So in that respect, when it comes to steampunk, your, your, uh, your mechanics need to reflect some of, the, some of the more popular moods of steampunk without trying to refine it down to like one magical, this is steampunk. One thing is, is steampunk is heavily mechanical. Okay? No matter what you look at, even if it's magical-based steampunk, I've seen a lot of really good magic. Steampunk has got a heavy mechanical element, even if it's a magical mechanic, or it's, it's you know, working with steam, or I got aether-powered generators, it doesn't matter. People are putting things together and taking things apart to make them better, or to make them do wondrous things in steampunk. Ergo, if you're designing a steampunk game, we need to have some kind of element where things come together and come apart to make things accomplished. In my own game, Twisted Skies, we just decided that the best way to do this would be to go straight for the gadgets. Steampunks love gadgets. Uh, we all love wearing them. We all love making them. And so we dedicated an entire card type in our game to gadgets. We call them tech cards. Uh, we take pictures of all the different gadgets that we come across at conventions that we think are super cool. We make cards out of them. And in gameplay, they go in and out of play very rapidly. They're affected by other cards, and they move around on players. But it's the, the ability to carry this awesome gear, which is very much a steampunk element, that brings that mechanical element into it. We also brought airships into it, which have stats that interact in the game. Because at the time when we started designing the game, airships was all anybody was doing. Does everybody remember like five years ago when everybody was an airship pirate? Yeah. Everybody was an airship. Oh, come on, guys. You know, it was really bad. Everybody was an airship pirate, and everybody had way too much hair gel. I wonder who they were imitating. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, um, the, having some kind of a mechanical element, some kind of uh, visceral, touchable, we use this to accomplish this type element in steampunk, uh, needs to be a part of your game. Um, how, do you re- how do you represent that? Well, there's a lot of great examples out there. Steampunk Munchkin actually has a cog and disruption mechanic in it where you like collect 
these little cogs and they allow you to do things in the game. I've seen steampunk games where you literally have pieces that you have to put together like a puzzle on a game board because you're putting something together. Again and again and again, there's some kind of at least representative mechanical element, okay? Uh, I had a friend who designed what he thought was a steampunk game, where, uh, but it had dragons in it. So the people on his cover were all, all wearing steampunk clothes, and he had steampunk art throughout his, throughout his, throughout his product, but uh, in, in the game, all the pieces and, all, and everything that it talked about, it was people wearing steampunk clothes, riding dragons, fighting each other, so they moved around these hexagons and rolled dice to make things happen. And uh, he couldn't understand why steampunks weren't latching into it. He's like, I got the art, he's like a hired professional artist. Look at these sexy steampunk women in these corsets with these goggles and these brave, dashing gentlemen with their brilliant mustaches. It's like, why don't the steampunks like my game? And I was like, well, if you took all the steampunk art off of it, this could be, and, and, and you just played it, you would think this was like a high fantasy game because of the way you constructed it, because of the elements you put into it. You're focusing on a more magical, more biological aspect. And you're like, where's one thing? I, when I finally boiled it down, I was like, where's the steam, Matt? Where's the steam in this? It's called steampunk. You've got a bunch of guys wearing goggles riding around on dragons fighting each other with lances. Now, while that is cool, uh, you're going to lose some steampunks. And I'm going to tell you this no matter what steampunk product you design, you're not going to hit everybody on the mark. We could walk into that closing ceremony tonight and say, hey, what is steampunk? there's 1,500 people in there and you get 1,500 different answers because there is no hard definition of steampunk and I pray to God there never will be. Um, the, the fact that everybody gets to bring their own flavor to the table, the fact that it is constantly evolving is what makes steampunk fascinating in a punk community, but it does make it a, a challenging genre to put into materials, especially games. So it has to have that steampunk element. Where is the steam? Where are the engines? Where are the airships? Where are the gadgets? Where are the hats, where are the goggles, and do they do something? They can't just be, we're going to make the same old game we always make, we're just gonna slap goggles on all of our characters. Lots of game companies have attempted this and have met very limited success. Like just taking something you already make and just writing steampunk across the top, not always good. The new steampunk mission, uh, Munchkin, was highly anticipated. It's come out, it did well at first, but now it's trailed off. I am friends with Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson Games. He lives in Houston, about two hours from my house. He actually went to the university that was a rival university of my university. So me and Steve have known each other a while. And uh, he called me and he said, hey, uh, Steampunk Munchkin's not doing as well as we thought it would. And I was like, what do you mean not doing well? He's like, oh, well, we've only sold half a million copies. And I was like, oh, darn, Steve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my heart bleeds for you and your half a million copies sold in the first two months. Um, and he said, no, I, I don't really get it, man. And I was like, well, I was like, you kept a lot of the, the same mechanics and you kept a lot of the, 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 the same thing. And I was like, it's constantly evolving, dude. It's constantly changing. Everybody has a different opinion. He's like, yeah, but Jim, you told me that Steampunk's already played Munchkin and they really like it. And they do. He's like, he's like how are they doing it? And I said, this way, man. We were taking, we'd go buy your Wild West set, and then we'd go buy your space set with all the ray guns in it. And then we'd go buy uh, your, your Munchkin booty set, which is your pirate set, and we'd shuffle them all together. And guess what? When you take lots of ray guns and space shoots, you take a lot of Wild West stuff, and you take a lot of pirate ships and sharks and stuff like that, and you shuffle all together and you play it, it comes out like steampunk. 
You mix, you mix uh, Munchkin Cthulhu in there, and boy, it gets really steampunk really fast. Um, and uh, so I was like, you know, you, you thought, you overthought it, Steve. You thought too hard. You're like, we got to have these little tokens that have cogs in them. And they're cool and all, but you, you, you took that extra step that you didn't need to take. You already had really good products. So it's a stepping game. You will misstep if you're making a game product for the public. Um, you can misstep with any finicky genre. That's why game companies, um, you know, I get questions like, why aren't there more steampunk games? Why aren't there any steampunk movies? Uh, why isn't there a steampunk series on TV? Well, it's because in, in, well, current. Everybody wants a steampunk Star Wars. Everybody wants the equivalent of the big blockbuster for steampunk. I yeah, <laughs> See that? Uh, but uh, the uh, um, what I tell them is, is when you're in entertainment, and we ran into this all the time uh, when I when I worked with uh, when I worked with Wizards, and when I talked to AG, which is a large game company in California uh, that also owns a magazine company, and the the thought in in, in publication of any mass media is um, we have to net as many people looking at this as possible, and niche markets are finicky, they're finicky. Steampunks are finicky, okay? One year we all want to wear bowlers, and the next year we all want to wear top hats. One year we want plain goggles, and then the next year, oh my gosh, somebody found a way to make glowing lights go on goggles. Now we all have to have glowing lights on our goggles. Uh, one year in Texas steampunk, all of a sudden everyone was wearing a kilt. It's just like three years ago, all of a sudden every steampunk had to have a kilt, uh, even the ladies. Um, so uh, uh, that is a rough, scary environment for a game or any kind of media publication company to try to service a finicky niche market like that. And if you're gonna design something, if you're designing something for fun for you and your friends to play with, that's great. But if you're trying to design something for publication, you need to understand right now that the market that you are targeting is finicky, it shifts. And whatever you make today, it will most likely not like tomorrow. It will become old very fast, it will become old news. It's one of the reasons I'm constantly adding expansions onto my game. I am constantly traveling the country and taking pictures of new steampunks. It's because if I don't keep pumping out a fresh expansion like every few months, um, my product will die on the vine. Um, and I've got to get five years out of that product. And just about any professionally published uh, game of any type, video games need to have a one year shelf life. They need to be able to sell, uh, they need to have a big release and they need to taper off as they go down. And, but they need to keep sailing until at least the next Christmas. That's the idea. Video games almost all come out of Christmas. They almost all come out in the 90-day window around the holiday season. And they've got to give the, a good, consistent downgrade of sales for 12 months to be considered a success. It has to keep going. Okay? If a game only successfully sells and consistently sells for six months or less, it's considered a failure in the video game industry. Um, traditional games, things like board games and card games, um, they need to be able to, to be able to be financially viable if you're really doing this for profit. So traditional games have to, especially role-playing games, they have to have a long shelf life. They have to go to like five or to seven years of dedicated following from your customer base or you're going to lose your shirt in the end. Realizing that their model is different, traditional games start off with a small following and become more and more popular as they age. Video games are very popular at the front due to hype and then taper off and like lose popularity as the age because newer games are coming out that are cooler and have new technology, etc. So remember that if you're actually thinking about doing that, who is actually considering getting into professional game design and trying to make money off of it? Anybody?
Yeah. Hey, it's, I salute you, it's a dying field. There are less and less of us every day. Um, to, like last time I checked in with the Game Manufacturers Association of America, independent designers, and these are people who don't work for a large game company, a traditional tabletop game, numbers less than 200 people in the North American continent right now. Guys like me who sit down and are like, okay, what does the dice do? There's, there's only so many of us left, and it's because nobody's picking up the torch. In video game design, this has gotten, uh, this is starting to show as well. About 20 years ago, everybody who went to college wanted to get a degree in computer programming so that they could go work for Blizzard or Atari or somebody making video games. And I mean everybody. Uh, they even had a video uh, game design program at the college I attended. And uh, I thought that was really cool, but then I did the math that they were putting a thousand people a semester through that program. And that's two semesters a year. They didn't offer it in the summer. So that's 2,000 dedicated people with computer degrees that want to be game designers from just my one college every year. And um, there are lots of colleges and universities that jumped on that too. So let me tell you something. Your chance of becoming a professional video game designer for like World of Warcraft or say, uh, you know, uh, Neverwinter Nights or on one of these big titles or working for a large company like Bethesda or Blizzard or somebody, you have a better chance of becoming an NFL athlete because at least the NFL athletes have a structure. They get to play football up through high school and college and get drafted, et cetera. Uh, when it comes to game design, if you want to go work for a big video game company, it's a bonanza. It's, uh, okay, I'm gonna walk into a room full of 20,000 unemployed video game designers and I'm gonna pick the three we need to bring on this project. Hooray! And then you know the investor calls and our three turns into two because we don't have enough money for those guys. Um, they are very well paid, but it is a very, very hard field to break into. And if you do break into video games, you're going to spend your first two to three years as a programmer doing backgrounds. You're going to be doing tiles and pixels, and we need the wheat to tilt this way, and I don't like the color of the houses. You're not going to get to do the cool stuff like storyline design and character design. You're going to be doing backgrounds, basically. Um, so keep that in mind. If you want to do it, I don't want to discourage you. But I want you to be realistic because I get a lot of people at these panels on, on gaming that say, how do you break into video gaming? I want to program video games. And I'm like, guys, it's rough. Now, the exciting thing that has developed in gaming is that now we have these things. And these things have really easy software to program on it. And just about anybody with half a brain and a computer science degree can program an app for, a, for one of these phones, including games. And just about anybody can sell that game on things like Google Play and Amazon, etc. And so this is going to be the new gaming marketplace. This is going to defeat consoles. This is going to defeat computers. It's going to defeat all other forms of gaming because it's everything I need to game in the palm of my hand and I have to have it with me because it's also my internet. It's how I talk to my family. It's how I order pizza. I do not lose this precious, beautiful device especially when you can make a million dollars designing a game that you sell for 99 cents because New America is app happy. If you're going, you want to make a game that makes a lot of money, if that's why you're here today, then you need to be programming for these things. You need to be designing games that work out with a finger because this is where it's at. This is the next frontier for gaming. Uh, and if you are looking at computer gaming like you want to get into video games, this is a great place to break in. There's a lot of guys. One of the problems they have over at, at Farmville yeah, the same company does Farmville and uh, all the little gym games and you know all the little saga games that they sell on TV. 
they, uh, they uh, have a problem losing their, their designers. They have guys who like program really good games for the phone, and then uh, uh, large software companies, console designers and PC designers hire their help away because they like the way the game looks. <laughs> Big hand, but it's starting to turn around. Now the phone app game people have more money than the traditional software game companies. So this is the new frontier. All right, so we talked about Phil. We talked a little bit about considering your market and what you're going to do. You might come up with the greatest game in the world, but if nobody's going to buy it and nobody's going to play it, then you're basically going to be sitting around playing with yourself. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the concept of getting it out there, again, and if you're just designing something for you and your friends, that's fine. But at the end of the day, it has to be entertaining. How do you make a game entertaining? There are three elements to an entertaining game. Pace. How long does the game take to play, and how much stuff do we get done in that time? If I'm playing, uh, one of the great things about Magic is that you can play a game of Magic in anywhere from five to a maximum of 45 minutes. Rarely do you see a Magic, um, a magic match go over 45 minutes unless both players have just somehow magically you know, like built decks designed to destroy each other, and they're both master players that never make a mistake. Uh, that's a really great game. Because that 45-minute window is about the entertainment threshold of your customer. The person who's playing your game has got about 45 minutes that they need to be engaged. If they're entertained, they'll stay engaged. And if they're not engaged by 45 minutes, then they're going to quit playing, even if they had fun at the front of the game. They'll give up after 45 minutes. So pace is how quick does the game play? How many steps does your game take in those 45 minutes? How many turns is a good measurement? If, if your game is turn-based, how many turns would everybody who's playing the game get in this time span? Um, electronic mediums, even, even shorter. You've got to get the hook in even faster. If you want somebody to get hooked on your video game or your phone app, they need to be engaged within five minutes. They need to know what's going on. So, uh, so keep that in mind. Secondly, um, uh, beyond pace, the, the second feature is, I'm sorry. I, uh, I got hit in the back of the head and I threw a really loud party last night where I had to scream a lot, so I'm not 100% this morning. I, I apologize. It was a great um, party. What? It was a great party. It was a great party. It was a little too great. You see all that trash in the hall? Um, okay, the second factor after pace is inclusion. Okay, How many people does your game appeal to? Does your game appeal to children? Does your game appeal to adults only? Um, uh, we are publishing a product right now that is 18 and up. It is not for kids, okay? Um, about the place where gaming starts on uh, any kind of commercial game product is five years old, and it just goes up from there. People play games, you know, all the way till the day they die. You have to decide which section of that age group you want to shoot at, because it's very hard to design games, unlike television programs or movies. Games, when they're designed, they have to have what's called a target audience um, that is very tight because you have to design rules and mechanics and controls that an age group can understand. Okay, but people under the age of 12 cannot play my card game, uh, with the exception of my daughter, and that's because she lives with me. Okay, so you need to look at, in addition, um, is your game appealing? There are games that only appeal to men. There are games that only appeal to women. There are games that are designed just for men. Uh, there are games that are designed just for children. There are games that are designed just for older people. 
So you need to consider your audience and how broad, because that's going to determine how, how mechanical you make it or how you design your mechanics. Children's games obviously have to be easier to understand and play. Older people's games can be more complex. College age people, it needs to have fantastic art and it can have a little bit of complexity and simplicity. Um, and you gotta consider that when you're designing what's your target audience. Um, and then, so after appeal, what is your appeal? Who are you trying to appeal to? Your third factor in designing a good game is, uh, and no matter whether you wanna make money or not, is marketability. And this is even with a, this is even with a game that you're just playing with your friends. Because um, generally I find that if a game is something people wouldn't sell or wouldn't buy, even if you're not selling it, it's not fun. It's just not fun, okay? Um, I've sat down with guys and played their little prototypes that they made out of wooden blocks and like, and this moves this way, and I've drawn my own game board, and we play this whole thing. And we play through the whole rules, and we give it a shot, and I play his demo, and they're like, well, Jim, what do you think? And I'm like, I wouldn't buy it. Did you have a good time? Eh, sorta, but I wouldn't buy it. Really, yeah. Because that's the level of fun you want to go get to if you're designing something that's going to take up people's time to entertain them. It has to be entertaining enough that if it was a product, even if you're not looking to sell it, that they would be willing to drop anywhere from $19.99 to $69.99. God, can anybody believe what video games have gone up to these days? Sweet Jesus. <laughs> I bought my Pac-Man cartridge for $5 <laughs> at the store. Um, it has to be something, and uh, even if you're not going to sell it, because I get that, well, I'm just making a game at home for me and my friends. Well, if your friends wouldn't be willing to spend money on it, it means that you have failed. It means it's not entertaining enough for people to take their wallet out, then it's not an entertaining game. Okay, so marketability. Is this thing sellable? Um, and with the word sell, and I, I hate the fact that we, we use the word sell to refer to commerce only, because it's not. The word sell literally means to convince someone, to compel someone to do something, usually monetarily. So can you sell your game? Can you hook people with it? Can they be interested with it so much that even if it was for sale, they would be willing to pull the money out of their wallet and buy it? So remember that. So those are the three big ones. Pace, uh, appeal, and marketability. Even if you're not selling it, it needs to be so enjoyable to people to spend money on it. Now, let's get into the steampunk beat. Number one, art. Uh, there's some concerns in steampunk art for games. Um, number one, steampunk art has a wide array. Like over on this end and the adult end, well, we have the adult end, don't we? I mean, let's be honest, guys. Steam Girl is out there. You can punch it up on Google just like that. So we have Steampunk over here. But we also have Steampunk over here. I mean, My Kitty is, yeah, Hello Kitty is doing Steampunk. Mickey and Minnie Mouse have been done in Steampunk by Disney. Uh, there are Steampunk products over here in the very, very family-friendly, very, family very, uh, very kid-friendly range. They exist. Uh, obviously, over here, we have lovely ladies wearing corsets and goggles and not much else. And lovely gentlemen wearing goggles and no shirts, just you know, an ascot. Uh, <laughs> I'll never take that picture again. Uh, and then over here we have uh, uh, we have you know cartoon characters wearing flight caps and goggles and tooling around in cartoon air, cartoon airships. Very cute stuff. And so art, you have an incredible variety of art. Um, you know, and this is one of the things that defines the steampunk genre. If we look at any other genre. Uh, even science fiction and fantasy, etc., they have very hard, very um, defined parameters uh, in their art world. Steampunk is all over the place because, once again, remember that definition rule. Everybody's got a different definition of what steampunk is, and that influences the art of the world. 
once again, when you look at your appeal, like who you're targeting, who you're trying to get to play this game, you need to look at your art. Um, uh, who's interested in getting into video games? Who's interested in designing a traditional game, like a card game or a board game? Well, if you're doing a card game or a traditional game, you're going to be doing flat art, 2D art. Uh, let me talk about the merits of drawn versus photographic. Um, drawn art, you can accomplish anything. You can have airships, you can have Cthulhu eating your airship, you can have people jumping out of wormhole, uh, you can have Teddy Roosevelt riding a dinosaur, shooting a flamethrower, okay, because it's drawn, okay, it's generated art. Um, but uh, it loses appeal with about one-fourth of the market. About a quarter of the market in any entertainment market does not like drawn products. Uh, it's been proven that one quarter of all Americans do not like cartoons. Can you imagine? But it's true. And we all know that one guy's like, nah, I don't like it. You know, we won't go see the Disney movie with their kids because they're like, ah, I don't like cartoons. Okay? Drawn art does not appeal to the entire market. It's not a hard sale. It's the most popular in the market because uh, in gaming, 2D hard art, uh, generated art is what they call it now because it's not drawn anymore. They used to call it illustrated art. But now we draw on computers. So now they call it generated art. Generated art is most popular because that's what we started with in all games. From Monopoly up, somebody drew something to make that game. We didn't start putting photos in games until printing technology got a little bit better. Uh, now, photographic art. Photographic art is cheaper. It's less expensive to use photos. It's a lot less expensive to get you and 10 of your best-looking steampunk friends together and run around the zoo or the state capitol building or some other location that has really cool backgrounds, take awesome pictures of you doing silly stuff, and then use those pictures for your game. I know this, that's what I do. <laughs> now I do hire illustrators from time to time, but I'm gonna tell you right now, photographers are way cheaper than illustrators. Illustrators are expensive, ladies and gentlemen, uh, especially when they're working with an independent concept. It's not like when you go to the convention, you're like, hey, will you draw me a Boba Fett? And they're like, oh sure, I know what Boba Fett looks like, or a Stormtrooper, or My Little Pony. But when you're designing a new illustration or an illustrator, that is a dedicated process. You have to go in and sit down and say, I need this illustration for my game, I need these pictures for my game. And uh, I have this heroine, and she has brown hair, and she wears gold goggles, and she wears high heels, and her corset has stripes on it. And the illustrator's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he's got a, and that's, just to get started, that's usually about $1,000, just to get your concept art started. Make sure that, because he's got to translate what you're telling him into a physical medium. And that's rough. That, that's, it that's a, longer. It does take longer. It does take a lot longer than, hey, let's take our friend Tiffany. Tiffany looks a lot like our main character. Let's dress her up in steampunk, and let's take her over to the public library where they have that cool-looking sculpture and take pictures of her for our game. Okay, so you can see the difference in cost. Because even if I hired a photographer to take pictures of uh, Tiffany and with professional camera and set up, most local you know, work for hire photographers are going to cost me about $300 for a day shoot, where an illustrator is going to charge me about $1,000 just to work out my concept art. And then after that, he's going to charge me either per piece or a percentage on every piece of art that he produces for my game. So generated art, whether it's on the computer or drawn, is more expensive than photography. I know that sounds crazy, but it's just the way the market has evolved. Um, the less and less people are drawing these days, uh, really. And a lot of people who are you know, artists can't pick up a pencil and draw anymore. They all do this. And that's fine. I mean, that's fine. That's an art form. But still, 
Um, that even takes longer. If you're like trying to get somebody to computer generate something, then, then take your illustration time and triple it because pixels take time. Um, so remember that about your art. Uh, those are your two options. Um, 3D components, if you're making a board game, pieces, carved pieces, there are multiple ways to do this. And this is, you've seen a lot more board games with really fantastic pieces and small press companies with these cool models that look like dragons and heroes and airships and tanks and they're incredibly detailed. And you're like, man, where did all these cool plastic pieces come from? Well, there's these awesome things called 3D printers that now we can all have. And if you've got the time to sit down and learn through the nose to run one of these things, and let me tell you, be prepared to give up two or three weeks of your life because it's still not a really, it's not a plug and play process on the 3D printers yet, I, I hate to tell you. Um, uh, you take that time, you design your 3D model, you pump it into the printer and it prints it out, and now I have a 3D game piece that looks like that. Here he is. He's gonna run around on my Steampunk Monopoly board. Um, I'm working on that. And then I take that, <laughs> I take that 3D model, and then I do a very, very, very ancient process called molding. And I take that model and I put it inside a latex super form, hardens around it, I pop that original out, I pour resin, high quality resin, and resin has gone from being something that was brittle and undependable to something that is now more dependable and easier to use than uh, traditional plastics. Like more and more people are moving to resins now for pieces. I pour resin in my mold, it dries, I pop it out, now I have a copy. I make 20 of those molds, I start making pieces, before I know it I've got two or three thousand pieces that I can use for my game. And I can do that in my garage. Now imagine what people with really nice 3D printers, some dedication and a good molding kit that's like on the scale of several thousands to be able to do. So pieces, 3D pieces are an exciting expanding market that usually used to be only big boys like Milton Bradley and Hasbro could get into things like that because of how expensive it was to make. But now, and, or even just how challenging, even up until a few years ago, if you, you wanted to make any kind of miniature, like little D&D miniatures and stuff like that, you had to have a sculptor. You had to have a miniature sculptor, somebody who knew how to sit down and, and make that master by hand that we can now just program into the computer and make with a 3D printer. It's blown up the market, but it has also put a lot of my, my, a lot of my miniature sculpting friends out of business. A lot of my friends who are sculptors who make little miniatures and stuff for the gaming companies are kind of out of work now because of the 3D printers and 3D modeling. But hey, that's technology. Time marches on. Uh, once upon a time, there was a guy who made the best buggy whips in the world. Uh, he's not working now either. Um, so, uh, so remember that. 3D pieces when you design them. Um, avoid sharp edges. Avoid extended pieces. Like I have lots of guys who like design these really cool board game pieces with these airships that have some kind of stick coming off the nose of their airship. This weird antenna that comes off the front of their airship. And you know what the first thing that breaks off that plane piece is? That stick. You need rounded edges, you need compact pieces, preferably some kind of a lump. Don't make them too large. Uh, we have a lot of games that have expanded their playing pieces. There's a game called Descent. It's a really cool board game. It's like a D&D type dungeon crawl. And it has these beautiful models, some of which are, are like dragons and monsters that are like, the model stands this big on the table. It's a big honking sucker, okay? And it's beautiful and that's engaging and it's a good selling point. But also that thing's a hassle to store. It's a hassle to keep up with. You have to put all the pieces back in the box just so or the box won't close. Who hates that about board games? <laughs> when you put all the stuff back in the board game box, and it's like, why is it? This is the box you came in, close. But uh, 
that, uh, that is something that you have to watch out for. So I encourage guys to scale it down. Let's, let's stay, I encourage people to stay at about the two square inch or less when it comes to physical game pieces for like a game board board type game, all right? Um, <clears throat> other artwork issues um, and some exotic stuff, exotic artwork. There are guys who have pop-up games, uh, board games that when you fold them out, you set another piece on it that's made out of cardboard or something and it forms a building or a castle or an airship tower or whatever. Um, those things are really cool, but money, 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 money because that is a special illustrator who knows how to draw that art that is not only beautiful, but is also a functional model that can be like put together back and forth many, many, many times and not fall apart in the life of the product. Um, uh, there's also a move towards what's called translucence, which is uh, basically any kind of like plastic that has art on it, and then you move it around games over top of cards or over top of the boards to see things or to make messages appear. This is translucence have been kind of a a cool fad that come and go in the gaming industry. They get hot for a couple of years and then they go away. Um, those things are not expensive to design. Believe it or not, any idiot can, can with a with a word copy of Microsoft Publisher can usually design them. But extremely expensive to, to manufacture because the, the price, the cost of the raw materials to make translucence is petroleum. <laughs> it's oil. And so guess what? The cost of manufacturing translucent game effects for your game will, will do this the whole time of the life of your game. And that's why we don't, we don't keep them all the time in the gaming. When oil is cheap, you see all these cool little plasticky things in gaming. When oil goes, like all those little plasticky things go away. Everybody's like, what happened to all the little cool doodads? Well, I know, they're all sitting in Saudi Arabia waiting for the price to go down. There'll be doodads someday. Um, and that's one of the reasons we made the move to resin in gaming because resin can be produced independent of uh, petroleum products. Um, so that it's not dependent on the price of oil. So there's some ideas about art. Uh, let's open it up to the panel. Does anybody have any ideas or questions about game art, generating it, contracting it, designing it? I'm not gonna tell you what steampunk art looks like. You're at TeslaCon, obviously you know what steampunk art looks like, but you do need to make some decisions about what kind of art you're gonna do. Are you gonna do cheesecake? Are you gonna do mythic? Are you gonna do gothic horror? Are you going to do family friendly? Are you going to go all the way over here and have little cartoon pigs that fly airships? Okay, so you have to make that. Are you going to try to jumble it all together and one make one big happy mess like I do in my game? Uh, good luck with that. That's not terribly successful. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, please learn from my mistakes. Um, but you have to make those decisions when you're designing, even if it's if it's from three dimensional. Really, theme and like your target audience is really important when considering your art. Like keep it appropriate. It, it's more than keep it appropriate. Keep it marketable. You know, uh, no nobody's going to buy the Adventures of Cato for their seven-year-old daughter, <laughs> or they shouldn't. <laughs> okay. Um, any questions about art? Hiring artists. Does anybody have questions about how to hire an artist, how to contact an artist? You guys are. I bet we're all tired this morning. Aren't we? It's just, it's a long night. Okay, moving on from art. Design, actual mechanics, designing the mechanics. How does the world work? When you design a game and you design the mechanics, you're, you're doing one thing. You are defining the world of physics. You are the laws of nature in the world of your game. You decide how gravity or acceleration or the rules of light work because you are literally the master of what's about to happen in this game. Okay? And 
that in, in video game programming, especially if you're making like an MMO, something like World of Warcraft, you're literally deciding how gravity and light and things like that are going to work. And so you need to make some very hard decisions about how much detail, how much mechanic you're going to use. Because every additional design, every additional layer of mechanic you add to a game adds more flavor, it should add more enjoyment, and it should add depth to your game. But it's a double-edged sword because every layer of mechanic you add to a game also can extend playtime, it can lead to boredom, it can lead to loss of marketability because people do not understand the rules, or they do not understand what you're doing, uh, or they just do not like complex games. Um, so like, be careful when you are deciding how your game is going to be played, whether it's going to be played simply because it has three rules. Uh, Tesla Cards Against the World has eight rules. They put on a card this big, okay? Twisted Skies has a rule book, which is five printed pages because it is a card game like Magic the Gathering, okay? Now, one of the things is part of that markability that rules into your game design and what kind of mechanics you use is that that is part of marketability. There are people who like complex games. If you play Magic, it's because you know how to do math, you have a mind for strategy, and you enjoy engaging other people in complex strategy and tactics in a competitive environment, okay? But that's you. That's not every gamer in the world, okay? If you, if you play Munchkin, it's because you like playing fuck your buddy. You like sitting around the table and stabbing your friends in the back, okay? And you like goofy art, you want it to be quick and easy to learn and easy to play. Uh, or you can play something as easy as Farkle, which is a game that's for, or, uh, or Yahtzee, you know, little games played with four dice, which usually have rules that you can learn in about two minutes, okay? And these are all markets. And there are people over here who do not like simple games, and there are people over here that do not like complex games. So as you're deciding on your mechanics, as you're adding different layers of how the game is played, remember that. You're moving up and down this scale of likability amongst customers and whether or not they're going to like your game. Um, designing mechanics for steampunk. Keep it fantastic. Steampunk is a setting of the fantastic. Okay? It is not possible, by my knowledge, to build a steam engine that has enough power to get a vessel off the ground and not be so damn heavy that it would crash to the roof of this hotel. Okay? Um, so at the very beginning, the concept of a steam-powered ship that flies through the air is fantastic already on its face, or gigantic mechanical robots stomping around in 1885. So your mechanics need to have an element of the fantastic. Um, when you design uh, your game, it should be possible to do things in the game that you can't do in your own life. Steampunk is a heroic, fantastic, exciting setting. Uh, even in subgenres of steampunk, things like dark steampunk, or what some people start calling goth punk, which is steampunk mixed with horror, or whimsy punk, which is steampunk mixed with cartoons. People are running around as, you know, steampunk Pinkie Pie or steampunk My, you know, My Little Pony or Hello Kitty. That uh, you know, all of these aspects um, are fantastical on their face. So if you make your steampunk game too realistic, and there is uber-realistic steampunk that's very steeped in history and very steeped in the real 1800s. It's just a slight variance, just a little twist here or there, um, and that's fine. But even those are fantastic on their face. Like, I met one guy who said, I don't know if my concept is steampunk because my concept is, is I don't have flying airships or anything like that, but um, uh, I have in my concept 
that the British Empire, uh, like Queen Victoria never died. Like she became an immortal and she lived forever. And the reign of Queen Victoria has lasted like 270 some odd years. And so because of that, the world never moved beyond the level of technology that Queen Victoria was comfortable with. And that's why we're all still running on steam. Is that steampunk? Because I don't have any magic, I don't have any flying airships, etc. And I was like, you bet your sweet ass that's steampunk. I've read that book. Yeah. <laughs> that's a uh, 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 transatlantic tunnel. There you go. Harrison. Yes, and that is steampunkish. <laughs> that is steampunkish crap. Why? Because it has an element of the fantastic. You know, what we all have in common as steampunks is the first, the first thought you have to be a steampunk is you say, what if? What if once upon a time? Or what if we never did this? Or what if we still did this? The what if factor needs to be a part of your steampunk game. It needs to be imaginative. It needs to inspire the, imagine, the imagination with the fantastic. Um, secondly, it needs to go, in my opinion, one of three major theme directions. It either needs to be horrific, such as Lovecraftian Cthulhu type stuff. It needs to be whimsical, because there's a lot of whimsy in steampunk. Uh, there's a lot of silly steampunks that do silly things and have silly themes and silly stories. That's fine. Or it needs to be adventurous. Okay, we're going to go to the deepest reaches of Africa and extract the magical aether gem with a retracting mechanical claw of doom. You know, it needs to be adventurous, whimsical, or dark. Um, do not try to mix more than two of these at a time. Okay. <laughs> Once again, learn from my mistakes. My little Cthulhu. My little Cthulhu. Like, sure, sure. We can have everything in Steampunk in one game. It won't look like a train wreck. Please, learn from my mistakes. It will look like a train wreck. Um, I'm going to make a new game called Train Wreck. Um, uh, so it needs I to think have, I've seen that game. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> it needs to be. So remember, <coughs> Steampunk is a game of. Uh, Steampunk is a genre of big themes, of big ideas. It's catchy, it's out there. Okay, so when you design your mechanics, you want there to be bold moves and bold actions in your games. Your, your, your game has to call have what we call antithesis. It continues to move, it chugs along, it keeps up its, it keeps up its steam. Something me and the other Steampunk game designers joke about is like, this game's got no steam, it doesn't keep it up. Okay? Um, also, when you're, and then finally, when you're designing mechanics, uh, to for steampunk redesign, uh, I have another panel I do just called basic game design. Actually, I have a master class on on game design. That's like if you want to take it, you can go to the University of North Texas, and it's worth two college hours. There you go, uh, <laughs> and you'll be bored stiff. Um, and then thirdly, uh, for steampunk, uh, there needs to be resolution, and it needs to be expected resolution. One of the reasons we all like steampunk is because. We kind of know the ending, but we don't. We know how the age of steam turns out. We know how society moves forward because we've all taken a US history class or world history class, and we know how the Industrial Revolution went and how it got us where we are today, okay? There's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in steampunk in knowing we're in the 1800s, it's going to be adventurous, and in the style of the 1800s, the guy's gonna get the girl, everything's gonna come out okay, we're going to save the airship, or we're all going to get eaten by Cthulhu and our souls will be damned for all time. Um, one of the two, but we have expectations and, they, and we give resolution in steampunk. Even if you read novels by people like Sherry Priest, even if you go all the way back to the first, all the way to, uh, to, to K.W. Jeter back in the 70s, there's resolution in steampunk. And that's because there was resolution in the Victorian world. Okay, it wasn't like today, we like to say, whatever. 
whatever would not have flown in the 1800s anywhere in the world. They were a definite people. They didn't have the ability to get on the phone and say, so what were we talking about? It's like, no, if I talk to you a day about an idea, we're going to work this out right now because you, you might die of cholera tomorrow. Um, so I really need to work this out right now. There's resolution in Steampunk. Whether good or bad, whether, they, whether the players succeed or they fail, they resolve. There's no hanging chads and cliffhangers. They just don't do well in Steampunk. Um, numerous Steampunk novels that have gone with a cliffhanger mechanic have done poorly. And you need to meet your players' expectations with Steampunk, okay? Because Steampunks have expectations. We all had expectations when we came to TeslaCon, didn't we? We were coming to Wild Wild West. We'd been to TeslaCon before. We'd heard about it or we'd seen the website. And we were like, hey, there's going to be some kind of awesome gimmick. Lord Bobbins is going to wear some outrageous outfit or say something silly. There's going to be all of our favorite characters. We had expectations. If we had got here and instead they were like, well, we've gotten rid of all the characters and we're not really building big props and sets this year. or We're just going to hold some panels and sell some cool steampunk stuff like every other con in the country. Um, thanks for coming, guys. We appreciate your $65. Have a nice day. Um, we would all pack up and go home <laughs> because well, the product had not met our expectations. There is resolution expected in Steampunk. Cliffhangers are not popular. Um, so keep that in mind. So how do you design mechanics? When you sit down and design mechanics, and I'm going to talk about traditional gaming guys here. I'm not going to talk about video games because um, this video games, this is a little bit more comp Then we're going to get into programming, and that's a lot more complex. In a game, when you're designing a game, the first thing you need to do before you think about art or what you're going to call it, or how long your instruction book's going to be, you need to look at what you're actually playing with. When I sit down to design a card game, I go get an index card. I go get a piece of cardboard. And I sit down at a table, and I lay that piece of cardboard in front of me, and I'm like, what can this piece of cardboard actually do? Okay, well, I can turn it this way. I can stand it back up. I can flip it over. I can turn it that way. I can turn it this way. Let's draw a picture on this side and a picture on this side. Now I can do this or that or this or that. I can turn it this way. I can pick it up and throw it away. I can put it in a stack. I can take it out of the stack. What are all the things I can actually do with my hands with this thing? Because you want to know what? Everything I can do with that piece of cardboard just became a game mechanic. If you do this with the card, this happens in the game. If you do this in the card, this happens in the game. If you flip the card over, this happens in the game. You take the card and you throw it away, that happens. You get the card and you give it to your friend over here. This happens. Those are all mechanics. So if you're going to be working with a physical game, actually sitting down and physically working with what you're thinking, you know, what can I actually do? Because if you don't do that, you're going to limit yourself. We had a big problem with magic back in the 90s. We hit a wall. And it was that we couldn't figure out anything else to do with the cards. You shuffle the cards, you draw the cards, you put them in your hand, you play the cards. The cards die, they go to the graveyard. Wow. And the game had been that way for a long time, since, since it came out in like 90, in 92. Uh, the game had been shuffle, draw, play, go. And we hadn't gone anywhere else with it. And so towards the end of the 90s, we started experimenting with things like um, we would, uh, well, exiling. Cards go away, and they can't come back. They don't just die, they're gone. They're out of play, they're gone forever. Um, uh, flipping cards over, we did that for a while on a couple of sets. Cards got turned upside down and they'd have different rules on the other side that you could read. We had cards that were two different cards, one on the top and one on the bottom. And depending on which side was, was up, that was the monster you had. Like this monster was white, but this monster was black. 
and they both had different mechanics depending on which way you had the card sitting. And so we, and literally how we got to that point was they pulled all of the, I mean, we had a big meeting with like 45 people, and we all get in this room and we sit down in Seattle, and he's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta brainstorm through this, and we talk about art and design, and let's get rid of this rule, or let's have two decks, or let's make the backs pink, and oh God, we came up with all kinds of crazy crap. At the end of the day, uh, Tom Jackson, doesn't work for him anymore, but was like the lead of development, got up and was like, you know what, let's do this. And he pulled a magic card out of his bag and he walked up and he went, what can you do with that? Uh, blah, blah, blah. It's, well, it's a, it's a flaming, you know, it's a flaming goblin, you can blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. What can you do with this physical object? What all can we do with this? How can we touch it? How can we move it? How can we play with it? And that was how we figured out many of the new mechanics that are very popular in Magic today. Exile literally Exile literally came from this. One guy was like, well, I guess I could just take this. And he just flung it off the table and flew it in the floor. And Tom was like, exactly. Somebody write that down. Pick up card, throw on the floor. <laughs> and that was the birth of Exile. It's like, this card is gone and it cannot come back. <laughs> so, uh, um, so something like that. If you're gonna have physical components, actually be physical with them. If you're gonna make a board game, like a board game is a surface, so get a piece of paper with little pieces moving around on it. Okay, so get a piece of paper and go like I just went and stole some little, some little like toys out of my daughter's room. <laughs> it's like okay, all right, well we got the fairy princess and we got the little you know furry teddy bear and we've got the unicorn and do 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 do. Even that, move them around. Okay, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a board that moves in a circle. Oh no, that doesn't work. I'm gonna have a board that moves in an S curve. Oh, that doesn't work. I'm gonna have a board that moves from each corners. Well, that works, but everybody does that. Um, so, same thing. If you're making a visceral game, get visceral. Get your hands on something and start teaching yourself what your materials are can actually capable of doing. You might surprise yourself, and you'll give yourself expandability. In my card game, you do not flip the cards over or turn them over or put them face down with their backs up. Yet. But it's going to happen. Why? Because someday I'm going to have to come up with something new to entertain my customers. And I've got those ideas, those mechanics tucked in my back pocket because five years ago I sat down with a piece of cardboard and said, what all can I do with this card? Okay, so if it's a visceral game, get your hands on something. Don't start designing art and mechanics and etc. until you, because when you're designing game rules, you'll hit a wall. Let's talk about that in game design. Hitting the wall what we call in game design. Hitting the wall is, oh crap, I don't know how to do this. Well, turn the card sideways. No, that's, that's what you do in turn two to get your airship. Oh, well, flip the card over. No, that's what you do in turn three to get your coal to power your airship. Uh, trade cards with the guy across the table. No, 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 we do that in the combat phase. Oh crap. Um, oh, holy crap, I don't know what I'm going to do because and usually that happens because you drove into design without actually analyzing the physical aspects of the game materials and what they could actually do. And it could be as stupid as someone, and I'm literally, literally I've been in game design meetings where some guy walked into a room full of people with a scratch board with like tons of stuff scribbled all over it. The guys were like rubbing their eyeballs because they've been at it all night. And some guy eating a sandwich from the day shift comes in and says, you should just turn it upside down. <laughs> hey, what if we put monsters on both sides and you just flip them around? Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, my God, that'd be cool. <laughs> then they walk off and you're like, hit you. <laughs> I hate you so much. We've been here eight hours on this. Um, so get those physical aspects down because you're going to hit the wall. That happens in every game design. You come to a point where you're like, my brain doesn't work. 
I cannot figure out, I know what I want the game to do, but I can't figure out how to do it, how, how to like make a game effect that makes what I want to happen happen. What do I do? Do I turn cards? Do I roll dice? Do I flip a coin? I don't know what to do. If you've taken the time to analyze your physical aspects and give yourselves options, shoot, my assistant designer writes them down. I have an, assist, I have a, an assistant designer that uh, designs about one third of our cards. He works, lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when we, when I went over everything that a, physically that a piece of cardboard could do, he wrote them all down. And then he put checks next to the ones that we were already doing, and he put circles around the ones that we weren't. And he's like, okay, to be used, being used. And he has it sitting in his desk for when he's designing cards. Um, so they can pull it out, because if he ever hits the wall, he just goes and grabs that piece of paper, and he's like, what have we not done yet? Ah, oh, we can flip the cards over. Okay, call Jim. What do you mean, no? <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to do that until 2017? Let's do it now. I need to design this card. Um, get that in there. Video gamers, you're the same thing. You're gonna hit, video game designers are gonna hit the wall as well. They get to a point where they're like, I just don't know which way to make the character go. I don't know if you should go down the right path or the left path. I don't know where we're gonna put the new zone. Uh, there's a cool thing in programming called zone layering. Uh, because believe it or not, uh, video game programming is so elementary that once upon a time we designed games this way on a flat, we designed games two dimensional, like Zelda. Like everything was on a grid map and it just kept going out and out and out and out and out and out. Now, now we, we still do that. We still design games that go out and out and out and out. But you kind of hit a wall programming. You can only go out so far. And we were like, and in, the, in the game design, in video game programming, they're like, how do we get over this? And then somebody was like, well, if we've filled all of this up, how about we do this? We leave this here and we go, and we slap another one on top of it. It's called design layering. And it's really cool. And they use a lot of this in WoW. Um, in the program, in the, in the code for World of Warcraft, um, the realm of the Lich King sits right on top of Stormhold. They're like, like in the program, they're like literally on top of each other in the virtual layout of like how the program works. That zone is actually right here. It's not over here. When, when you run, you think you're going this way. You think you're going west. But actually, you're going up here because that's where, that's where it sits in the program. It's called program layer. Okay, and that's that was an aha moment because somebody hit the wall because they didn't know we like we've only spread out so far. Where are we going to go? You're going to hit that point. Uh, tools for getting past that. Number one, take a break. When I say take a break, I don't mean go have a cup of coffee. I mean literally take like two or three days of not working on your game. Don't don't work on your game for like a week. Set it aside. Work on something else. Go eat a sandwich. Go, uh, go to a movie, go on vacation, come back. Every time I come back from TeslaCon, I haven't been like working on any products for like three or four days. I come back, I'm fresh with, with ideas on how to make things work. I figured out how to, I figured out how to make one of the new cards work this weekend just talking to somebody in the hallway, okay? Take a break. You're gonna have to take, and it's not like writing a novel where you're like, I'll go have a cup of coffee or I'll eat a sandwich and then I'll be refreshed. Game design is a highly complex art. It is more complex and it is more demanding than writing because uh, it is interactive writing, it is explanative writing, you are literally telling someone what to do, you are, like, you are trying to tell someone that you are not in their presence, you are not standing there in front of talking to them, you're trying to communicate to them through a piece of paper what you want them to do to play your game. If you don't think that's difficult, I challenge you to go sit down and write some instructions for your significant other. Because I've written down instructions for my wife that were literally bullet points, and she still got it wrong. 
Give somebody directions sometime over the phone. Okay? Take that to the next level. That's writing instructions for a game. Okay? So remember that. Um, and you're going to need more time to let your brain like cognitive that. Um, writing instructions. Let's talk about that. Writing instructions for gameplay. Because uh, I'm not going to tell you what mechanics to design. And I'm not going to tell you how to design mechanics. You know that. You know you want a game where like, pieces move like this, or you roll dice like this, or you play cards like this, or you move control around like this, etc. That's Everybody in this room knows that. If we went into that, we'd be here for weeks. But what I am going to tell you is that, like, is, is number one, when you're designing mechanics, when you're writing rules or instructions, lowest common denominator. Assume that the person you're writing instructions for is a complete moron, okay, with a third grade reading level. Okay, even if you make a game ages 18 and up, it does not matter. Keep it simple, stupid. Not that you're stupid, keep it simple for stupid, <laughs> okay? Because um, nobody ever complained that game rules were too simple to read. It's like, well, I'd play your game, but it's just so damn easy to understand. I've never heard that in my life, ever. The number one complaint from any game customer is the rules are too complex, I didn't understand the instructions. We have changed our instruction book seven times and we still get this complaint. It has been heavily edited and reviewed and reviewed again and we are still constantly working on it and we're not the only one. We are not the only Everybody who has a game that has more than three rules has rewritten their instructions more times than they can count. And it drives all of us crazy. Because if you're the guy writing it, you're like, I understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Flip the card over, stupid. <laughs> but, but on the other end, you know, language is different, use of verbs is different, um, education level is different, understanding is different, conceptualization is different. Because you can see it in your head doesn't mean they can see it in their head. Great way to test this, um, and this is, these are very nice people, they'll do this for you, um, is just like having someone proofread your book, have someone like test read your instructions. It's like read this and tell me you can play this game. Tell me you understand what goes on in this game. It's boring. Especially, because we're not going to play the game. I just want you to read the instructions. And that is a, a, a very special person who's willing to do that very dull job for you. Um, because you're cheating if you actually get the game out and play with it while you're proofreading your instructions. And here's why. I need to be able to read your instructions and understand how to play your game even if it's not sitting in front of me, even if I can't touch it and play it. Because if I start playing it, then as we're playing it, we'll say things like, oh yeah, it does this, or well, you're kind of supposed to do that. And you know what you're doing there? You're filling the gaps in the instructions through gameplay. That needs to be avoided, okay? I need to be able to read your instructions and I need to be able to see your game in my mind and know how it is played, okay? Uh, so that's a tip on writing instructions. Keep them as brief as possible. If your game is complex and it has complex effects like card games do, give examples, okay? When blue card A is like, when cards are played to destroy each other, the destroyed cards goes to the graveyard. Uh, what does that mean? Well, example, when, uh, when blue elf comes out and you play Immobilating Fireball, Red Goblin is sent to the, you know, if you could do a picture with little arrows showing all this stuff moving around, I know that sounds retarded, but it's, it's the market. You have to assume that your customer is literally the worst educated third grader in Arkansas, 
okay? They just have to, they're, they're just complete morons and they don't understand the English language. Use small words, don't use big concept words. Like, like I, I had a guy who <laughs> used to work for us who wrote gigantic words. He's like, you tragsmortify this. No, 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 no. Is that like a fluff term? No, that's like a game term. Uh, no, let's not do that. Exchange, no, don't use the word exchange. Use trade. Like small words, simple concepts. As, as, as quick as possible. If you have to use a big word, use a big word, but keep it simple. Everybody's education level, everybody's intelligence level is different, lowest common denominator. Think of the stupidest gamer you've ever played with, okay? Oh man, Larry, yes, write your rules for Larry. Okay? This term is exiled, defenestrated. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yes, and clearly defined, do not have open-ended rules. The English language, ladies and gentlemen, and boy, we learned this at Watsi real fast. The English language is a language of exceptions and addendums. Um, this word means this, but it also means this. This word except means, when it also means this. Except when it also means this. The word may means you have the option to do something. The word shall means you have to do it. Uh, that was an important discovery at Watsi one day. Because <laughs> we, uh, we had a guy who was a pre-law who, who, who uh, came through playtest, and he was like, you know the word may means it's optional, right? means I don't have to do this. And you know the word shall, if you use the word shall here, the, the word shall is imperative, there's no option. If you tell somebody you shall do something, you do it. That's why the word shall is used in legal documentations. Such and such shall, such and such shall. It's not because they like the Bible, folks. It's because the word shall is imperative. You have no option, you shall do this, you will do it. Even the word will isn't as imperative as shall. Um, so the English language can be interpreted a lot of different ways. Punctuation, where you put a comma. Oh, the <laughs> delights that commas and periods have caused. That's grammar. Yeah. Commas save lives. Commas save lives. <laughs> comma, oh, but there's a comma there, which means there's a step. It's like, you do this, comma, then you do this. Well, actually, you do all of that, there's a comma there because grammar. Well, sometimes, this is terrible, but sometimes in, in especially printed materials, to get the idea across or to get people to play the game mechanic the way you need them to do it. You take grandma, grammar and say, bye grandma, and you just <laughs> chuck it out the window. You know, you're, you're, you're done with grammar for a minute. You, you skip those commas or you skip those periods because you know they'll be misinterpreted. They'll, call it, they'll cause breaks or pauses or misunderstanding along the way. The English language is confusing. So keep it simple, simple words, simple concepts. Whatever you're doing, put it in the simplest sentence you can possibly do and use as little punctuation as possible. And I know that sounds terrible. Maybe it's a dialogue on the state of society, but that is what you have to do if you want to make a game that people are going to be able to play and understand when you're not sitting there. Because I can sit down and play any of my games with everyone in this room, and we'll have a great time. But I'm the designer, okay? I'm the guy who designed the game. So obviously, I'm going to be able to get you through a game in a really good time. I need you to sit down and have a really good time with my game when I'm 3,000 miles away and I don't know you, okay? I don't know you. Every game, the you know, weak games that I see on the market right now are games that have really big FAQs, really big uh, question and answer sections on their forums, huge forums, big, huge rules forums. Now, for complex games, that's understandable, especially games like Magic or Pokemon that have evolved over several, several years and several, several sets. But if you just put out a board game 
you have 5,000 rules questions on your website from your customers in the first month, there is a problem in your instructions. There is a serious issue in your instructions. And then you have to publish the most dreaded thing in the game manufacturing field, the dreaded errata. This is the errata. We said this in our rules, but now we're saying this. Uh, we know we wrote the rule this way, but what we really meant to say was that. It is, it's like holding your hat in your hand and you know, apologizing to your mama. Yeah, characters have almost gotten killed by errata. Cards have gotten wiped by errata. Errata has taken the entire cards out of play in Magic and Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! So, you don't want to go there. Sometime you're going to be faced to revise. I've resigned. My game is less than five years old and I've revised it. We have five or six cards that we were like, yeah, that sentence structure was pretty crappy. We didn't get that across. You know what? One of the trickiest words in writing rules, especially on cards or board games or anything, is the word you. When such and such happens, you may do such and such. That is a dangerous, well, who's you? Is you me, the guy who's playing the card, or is it you, the guy I'm targeting the card with? Who is you? When you say you, who do you infer? Who are you inferring? So we had to get away from you, and we went to the player, the player of this card. And it gets really boring. We have, we have a sentence on like half of our, uh, all of our interrupt cards, almost all of them, it says, you may place this card in your hand or play it immediately. And you would think that'd be something people could just remember. But we write it on every damn card. You may, play this, you may place this card in your hand, or you may play it immediately. It's an interrupt card in our game. Um, and that's to let people know, you need, when you draw this, you're like, ooh, shit, I'll use that right now. Or, oh, I'll save that for later. Um, and you would think that would be, people could learn that. But we have found that actually putting what, everything a card does on the card, and we're not the only ones, everybody has found that, is actually just the best way to write a card game. Is just put it all on there. This is exactly what this, even if it's, a, it's a, a paragraph. And if you can, avoid the paragraph. The most joked about cards in Magic are the ones that you get the, you get a Magic card, or you get, and there's even a couple of Pokemon cards like this, and uh, it's in size five font. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm going to read a book now. Um, so, uh, you know, really, any kind of a game, a card game material shouldn't have more than three sentences on them. That's, that's getting heavy. Um, board games, writing on the board, should be no more than titles and simple sentences. It's a board game, it's supposed to be visual, it's supposed to be looked at. If it needs more than a sentence, it needs to be an instruction book, okay? So, um, remember that. Yes, sir? I'd like to point out that sometimes you make things just a little too simple and run into the same problem. You do, you do, One of the Thank most you. tragic magic games I ever had was one where the other player said, uh, laid down a card that said, your opponent loses next turn. Next turn came around, I lost. It was on the card. Yeah. I had to obey. Right. Follow the manual. Yes. And it was right. terrible. It was terrible. Simple rules can lead to the same problem. You know, make sure you define what's going across. And once again, that's that proofreading thing. You gotta have buddies who read your rules, who read your cards. Playtesting. Okay, well, this is part of mechanical design of anything. Playtesting. How do you playtest? People ask me, how do you playtest, Jim? How do you playtest your game? Well, make a whole bunch of copies of my new product, uh, sometimes on note cards, because I'm cheap. And by the way, Steve Jackson Games, every new edition of Munchkin is printed out on paper and then glued on a note cards like they were third graders. And that's how they test every expansion of Munchkin. Every line. Because I have the note card playtesters for Munchkin Cthulhu, and Steve gave them to me and signed them for me. 
Uh, so they're sitting in my house right now in a little collector's box. But it's literally just ye old index cards cut in half with shit glued on them like they were in the first grade. And that's how they decide how their game's gonna work. Don't be afraid to make stuff like that. You don't have to get your art worked out. You don't have to like decide what your borders are gonna look like or what your instruction book, what color your instruction book is. Go get some index cards. Go get a big piece of paper and some little army men if you're making a board game and like doodle it out the best you are and go to work at it and start play testing. Play testing should be done in groups. It should be done in control groups, just like testing any other product. Uh, games are easy because they're meant to be played in groups. So usually when my company, we call them tables and we usually divide them widely by geography. Um, we have a group of friends that live in Oklahoma. We send them our products. They get together, they play the products two or three times, and then they send us back their feedback. We have another group in, Fort, in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. We have another group in Dallas, Texas. We have another group in Austin. And none of them know each other. None of them know each other. They're not Facebook friends. They don't talk to each other. They're just guys that we have ran into that like to play games and are really and, and then reward these people because they're, they're testing out your cheap new crap. Uh, if the game actually publishes, send them all a free copy. It's the price of doing business, okay? So, playtesting is done in groups. Keep records of your playtesting. If you do set up a playtest group for your game, then make sure, um, hey, good to see you, Judge. Make sure that uh, whoever is running the group, whoever is like the, the DM, the dungeon master of the playtest group, keeps notes on problems and on successes. We really liked this. We really didn't like that. And one pitfall of playtesting and playtest groups when you're playtesting a game is it's very easy for them only to write down the problems of the game. It's like, well, this didn't work, that didn't work, we didn't like the art, the instructions were hard to read, etc. And then, um, but we also need to, you know, the designers, as you as a game designer, you need to hear things like, we really liked the way this worked. We really liked the way the box was set up. We really liked the cool wooden box. Or we really liked the artwork. Or we really liked the way this did. You need to hear as well positive feedback on what people enjoyed about your product, about what was good about the game. Because if all you're getting is your pitfalls, uh, you know, game designers are just like other human beings. After about 15 playtesters write back, you're like, God dang! The instructions suck, Jim. What'd you write this in, Swahili? I don't even know. I don't even know how to play this game. I don't know whether I don't know whether to play with these cards or wipe my butt with them. You know, you can only take so much of that before you're like, this game is terrible. <laughs> I give up. Throw it away. Let's go sell hot dogs. Um, so, but uh, <laughs> don't, don't give up. Uh, make sure that your playtest groups. You need them to give them the positive aspects of your products as well as the negatives. They're not just there to find the holes. But they do really need to take your game around the block and try out the tires. They really need to put it to the stress. And so we have a couple of playtest groups, like our playtest group in Oklahoma uh, playtests our card products only, and it's made nothing of nothing but tournament level magic players. These are guys who play on the magic circuit, they play in competitive tournaments for money and prizes, and they are rules lawyers. And everything I send them, they tear it to shreds. I get I get a, an email that's like this long. It's like this is wrong. This is wrong. This sentence is wrong. This comma shouldn't be here. I didn't understand this. I didn't understand this. I didn't understand this. Uh, pros, uh, we like the hot girl in the corset. Thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, but and then I have another group that plays casually in Dallas, and they're just casual gamers. They're Munchkin gamers, as like these people get together and play board games on Sunday nights, just some friends. And they're like, and I get a list back from them. It's like, well, I, I thought it took too long. 
or I think there should be more players, or I don't think I can play this with my kids. And so when you build your playtest groups, build variants into them. Everything from the hardcore gamer to the, hey, let's play this in the car, in the car on the way to Tesla. Okay? Uh, how do you set them up? Start with your friends, branch out from there. It's really easy once you've got a product developed. We have people ask to play test our games all the time. Um, that's how we got all the groups now. We met them at conventions. Uh, gaming clubs, uh, people who play games regularly, especially you video game testers or guys who are making app games for your phone. Uh, find gaming clubs, especially college campuses. They'll have great, uh, especially if they've got a heavy computer science department, they'll have like really good clubs that you can like turn your products over and they'll tear them apart for you. They'll really put them through their cycle. Um, it's 10 till 11. I have 10 minutes. Quick questions. Quick questions on game design. Because playtesting is the final step, and then you go to release. You release. Um, who would like, you know, who has a question, like who is actually interested in how the game publishing works? Because game publishing is pretty basic. It's just like publishing a book. You develop a product, you go to a publisher, you introduce them your product, they play it just like they read a book, and they either say, yes, this is cool, we'll pick this up and we'll carry it for you, or they say, no, this is utter crap, you have wasted your life, please go make french fries at McDonald's. Um, and they are really... There doesn't seem to be much in the middle of There's that. no middle. They are really that brutal. <laughs> they are really... David Reed over at Wizards of the Coast is the most vicious man in product development you will ever meet in your life. He will tell you straight to your face how much your game sucks and why you shouldn't be a human. <laughs> it's just, he is a vicious bastard. Um, and so that's how, how games traditionally get published. But now we have self-publishing for games, and that is an exciting new frontier. If you're into writing RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, well, fantasy, fantasy publishing or uh, print-on-demand technology serves your needs very, very well. Um, but now we have print-on-demand cards. That's how I got into the card game, because now they've invented new technology where they have print-on-demand card games. That means everybody in here could design their own poker deck with their own faces on it upload it to the, to the service, and then get their own card decks made, no upfront cost to you. That is a unique new technology. I know because our product was one of the very first card games using that technology. And let me tell you, we, we screwed it up pretty good the first few times. We, like, we, we broke the machine once. That was an awesome phone call. Uh, <laughs> wait, Jim, Jim, what was in this file? This file is corrupted. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like, I have a 60,000 piece of equipment that's like burning down right now in my department. Uh, the West Bend, oh, wrong number. <laughs> um, so, uh, but there's a lot of options now. In fact, now, for those of you guys who want to think about designing board games, there's actually a, a service out there that will design plastic pieces and do custom dice for you on demand and send them to your home at low cost. It's all available now. That, that market has opened up. You don't have to be Milton Bradley or Hasbro anymore to do this stuff. Um, so, but once you've gone to playtest, you go to publishment, and once you've published, you are not done. Your game will continually grow, it will expand, you will errata it, you will change it, you will change the instructions, you will change the art, you will do a new edition. Why do you do a new edition? Well, you've come up with better ways to sell and play your game, and if, if you're really evil, you release your new edition, so the old edition isn't good anymore, so you have to buy the new edition and we all make money. Does anyone recognize this model? Yeah. <laughs> Very popular in game. So we've got about five minutes. I can take two questions. Two questions about game design for Steampunk. So, um, advice on, on balancing inventors. Inventors. So, so basically you have like an inventor character 
who builds this neat device, well now he can give that super weapon to all of his all of all his, his people. And everyone's got this super weapon. And now the and, game's off. And the now the game's off. Resources. In every game mechanic, whether it's role-playing games, um, board games, or card games, etc., the production of powerful elements released into the game environment can be controlled by the resources necessary to produce the dangerous element. Ergo, if your mad scientist is going to make a ray, a ray gun that's going to break the game, I'm going to make sure that that ray gun requires a crystal and a type of metal and an energy battery that can only be play it, found on like three places on the face of the planet, and they're all guarded by griffins. How about that action? Now go make your game-breaking gun. I dare you. Rocks fall, you die. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I've found like uh, that's a difficult thing for them to balance because there's there's all those stages before that where it's like, okay, I can just do gunsmithing. I'm a badass gunsmith, so I can fix that gun and make it better. Right. And the game master goes, no, nah, I don't want him to do that. I don't want him to do that. <laughs> Resources are, or resource management is one of the biggest tricks in a game designer's uh, toolkit. Um, the additional thing is uh, malfunctionism. We actually built a malfunction mechanic into Twisted Skies. If you roll a six, when you roll your D6, whatever gadget you're using in the card game overloads and explodes, and you have to throw it away. You don't have that cool gun anymore, uh, especially with, with, with more powerful weapons. If you roll a six, it blows up and goes away. Uh, in a role-playing game, if you kill so many people, you run out of ammo. Ammo, ammo limitations, those are great for role-playing games. So I have this awesome plus seven bow that can kill dragons at 500 yards and shoots lightning. Yeah? Where do you get lightning arrows? Crap. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very bad harp. Um, so uh, uh, so resource, resource management is a great way to limit that. Breakability is a great way to limit, is to limit that. Wearability, it gives out over so much time, it's only it's got a lifetime that it can only live so long. Uh, these things are great ways to limit that. Um, skill, uh, and then of course skill progression. Uh, skill level has to be at a high enough level to produce certain elements. Um, realizing that if somebody's playing a game long term and it's a progressive game where you're allowed to get better and better and better, eventually they are going to be a level 99 inventor and they are going to build, you know, the Death Star. And you just need to, you know, their, their copper plate Death Star that runs on Steam, it's going to happen once they get to level 99, you better be ready. And the game master, you better be ready for yeah, it. Yeah, and at that point, <laughs> and at that point it's time to say, hey guys, let's, uh, let's play Monopoly. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I ran into one game where we were doing that. Our characters were advanced to the point where we were we were dominating things pretty well. So the game master just just started cheating to destroy us, to try to kill us. It's like well, that's not fun anymore. It's true. You know, if you're just making stuff up and reinterpreting roles to kill us. Come on, we gotta that's, do, not that, very, that's not that's fun. not a very that's intuitive. That's not a very intuitive. Game At master. some point, you yeah. just have to say, "All right, guys, you win." You win. <laughs> you game win. over. Okay, that's roll up new first level characters. These exactly. guys. <laughs> that's a really good time to retire them and retire yeah. yeah. status. We were ready for what retirement. We were ready for retirement. Yeah. We talked a lot about games, but you know, getting the steampunk theme right in games. What are some of your favorite games that you think have gotten it? Have gotten it. Um, you know what? I thought Bioshock Infinite was actually beautiful, and they did a really good job. Except the ending sucked. And that's like that. Everybody's like, "Wow!" It's like the most. It's the it's the biggest anticlimax since your prom. Okay, it's just it's just the thing you thought was gonna happen. You know, everything you thought was gonna happen, didn't, and we talked about that, didn't we? 
The steampunks want resolution. They have expectations. That's part of the, the genre. Clean clothes. Um, so I thought, but beyond that, it was a great product. Uh, video game-wise, Dishonored, so beautiful, so well executed. One multiple, uh, probably the best steampunk video game I've ever seen. Um, board game-wise, believe it or not, guys, the, the new designer out here who's running Zephyr, that new board game that he's designed, in the pre that game is gorgeous. And John has done a wonderful job on the design. It's very comprehensive. It's very well. It's very intuitive and easy to play. And it's fun. He's done an excellent job for a new product. That's my number one new Steampunk game product. I'm going to be reviewing it on my blog here pretty quick because I was very impressed by it. Uh, older products, um, I would say, uh, let's see. You know one of the best Steampunk role-playing products I ever saw? It's not even in print anymore. It's called Castle Falkenstein. I love that book so much. That's like one of the most beloved things. And then the other one who's really gotten right, Space 1889. Space 1889, great product, very well. Does a great job at capturing the genre. I mean, you're sending the, you know, the Victorian Empire to Mars to fight Martians. What's not steep? I mean, those guys, they got it. They got their hands around it. Um, so pretty good. Uh, thanks. Very welcome. So do you think that collaboration is a good mechanic? Steampunk I think collaboration is a great mechanic for steampunk because my belief in the steampunk community has always been together we are stronger because the Victorian era was an era uh, and the Industrial Revolution was an era of bringing things together to produce wondrous results. Who would have ever thought that you could take fire and water and metal and make horseless power? That's magic folks. That's collaboration. That's bringing things together. Steampunks are social. They like to be together. They like to hang out. When you meet steam, you meet one steampunk very rarely. You meet crews of, of steampunks very often. We're social. We like to collaborate. We like to work together. I would encourage anyone making a steampunk game to make it collaborative. When I designed Twisted Skies, the very first thing I said is, this is going to be a game that people sit around a table and play and laugh and have fun as a group. It is going to be a group game because steampunks come in groups. They come in airships, they come in film crews, they come in prop crews. <coughs> Collaboration is very much at the soul of steampunk. Good question. You know what, guys? We're done. Now, when that was the last question, what a great note to end on. My name's Jim Trent. I'm over in Sidewinder County behind Bluebeard the Pirate. Come by and see me and ask me any additional questions you see, and please buy some of my games. If you like having gaming programming on the schedule at TeslaCon, tell TeslaCon, because every year we have to like lobby and lobby and lobby to make sure that gaming programming is included, because unfortunately, as much as we love him, Lord Bobbins is not a gamer, and by his own words, he doesn't get it. So, <laughs> so, so please let TeslaCon know that you like gaming-based programming. Thank you for coming today. I appreciate your attention. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition, and Scion, Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.